Welcome to Books and Nachos. A podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in LA, welcoming you to Odyssey. This is the kickoff to our four-part speculative history of our current millennium as seen by Arthur C. Clarke in four Odyssey novels. We start in 2001, we're going to take stops in the years 2010, then 2061, and we're going to make our way all the way in four weeks to 3001, the final Odyssey. Now, as I stated, noted astronomer, oceanographer Arthur C. Clarke receives sole credit for pinning all of these Odyssey novels. I think it's only fair on this first podcast that we also acknowledge the contributions made to the story by film director Stanley Kubrick. His name's not on the book jacket, but maybe it should be, because there would be no book to review today if he hadn't decided in February 1964 that his next film was going to be set in outer space and that he was going to use it to try and define mankind's place in the cosmos. Pretty ambitious stuff. And so he really needed a great science fiction writer to collaborate with to come up with that concept that was going to meet those ambitions. And he ended up settling on Arthur C. Clarke. He actually wanted to adapt Arthur C. Clarke's novel Childhood's End, but the rights were unavailable. So then they decided, well, maybe we can do an original concept. There was a short story called The Sentinel. It was only eight pages long. That was sort of the germ of the idea that grew into the screenplay and the film 2001. And so what's remarkable to me about this project is that the book didn't come first. This is not an adaptation. Kubrick wrote the screenplay and shot the film simultaneously as Arthur C. Clarke worked on drafts of the novel. And while normally I would think that you could produce a a book faster than you could a Stanley Kubrick film, I mean, it took four years after all, from 1964 to 1968, it actually didn't come out until months after the movie's premiere in April 1968. There was constant revisions on both sides. Arthur C. Clarke would finish his book, think he's done, and then he would get rushes from the film set, see what Kubrick had done, and went, oh, you want to do it that way? Oh, it looks like that. And so he would have to change things. And likewise, he would send drafts to Kubrick and Kubrick would realize that he had thought about the science in a way that he hadn't and applied his realism in a way that was going to make the movie better. So things got tossed out of the movie. And yeah, truly, this is a co-collaboration. And 
I feel like they both are the authors of this story. Although, of course, Kubrick never did sit down at a typewriter and work on the manuscript that I read today. Now, I'm going to break a rule that I usually have here at Books and Nachos. Typically, I say, if you want to hear my thoughts on the movie, go over to Sister Podcast Now Playing. This week, Jacob, Arnie, and I are covering 2001, A Space Odyssey, Kubrick's landmark 1968 film. All my thoughts are there. This should be about the novel, right? But because they were birthed at the same times, because they're twins, they're two sides of the same coin... I am going to break my rule, and I am going to talk about the movie. There's going to be several times that I'm going to make direct comparisons between book and movie, because the movie was not an adaptation. It was created at the same time. Plus, let's be honest, who is going to read this novel, enjoy it, and then go, "Ah, I'm done, I, I don't need to see the movie. I mean, if you read this novel and liked it, you were going to want to see that film. In fact, I think it happens in the reverse. I think most people would see the film, go, what the hell did I just watch? And then go to the book hoping to find some answers to it. I know that was my attitude. The first time I picked the book up several years ago, I was hoping to have things explained in a movie that I found very frustrating, enigmatic, left a lot unexplained, and that really pissed me off. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My feelings about 2001 have changed over the years. The film was a bore. It was a frustration. It was something I did not enjoy. And now it has become one of my favorite films. So uh, reading the book has, in some ways, helped elucidate my feelings about the movie. It has helped explain things in the story that did not make sense. So I think that, yes, we can bring them both up for this discussion. They both have very unique styles. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke had been writing for decades. He had already developed his writing style. And oftentimes when I read his work, I'm imagining I'm in a lecture hall listening to a wizened professor. Or maybe I'm watching like an old school nature documentary. There's He has very simple language, but he uses it to convey the grandiosity of the universe. I, I feel like he does so with a strong sense of authority and with a real impassioned love of science. We always know where we are when we read it. There's little ambiguity. And so it makes it feel vastly different than Kubrick's instincts. It's almost antithetical. I mean, Kubrick wants to omit things. Kubrick wants to confuse, perplex, prolong. I mean, this novel is as sparse as the movie is protracted. And I dare say you could probably read it in the same amount of time as you could watch it. Now, they both begin at the dawn of history, when mankind is in a primitive, dare I use the word, fetal state. Things do not look good for us. Our survival is hanging in the balance. You know, we're starving. There's tribal warfare. There's predatory animals like leopards running around. The book does something that, to help. If, if you feel rootless in that first 20 minutes of the Kubrick film, here in the book, we're given a protagonist to follow. Arthur C. Clarke wants us to pay very specific attention to one man-ape he calls Moonwatcher. And I think that's a good name because it really encapsulates all the hopes and aspirations of every earthbound man for the millions of years it's going to take to leave Earth and get to the moon. I mean, the next character we're going to meet after Moonwatcher is a moon visitor. These are the first tentative steps 
away from extinction and towards that destiny. Moonwatcher is special because he's going to be the first creature to encounter the monolith, which is a crystalline rectangular slab. It's a mystery is really what it is. And it's what it is and what its influence is on mankind is open to all kinds of interpretations in the Kubrick film. That's one of the things I love about the movie now but found so frustrating back then. Here, Clark makes it very concrete. When you read this novel, by the end of it, you understand very clearly the monolith is a machine. It is not a sentient being in and of itself. It is not the alien. It is a machine sent by an advanced alien race to propel man forward towards a destiny. Who knows? We'll get to the end of the novel when we get there, but for the start... It's here to teach Moonwatcher and his tribe how to better fend for themselves. And we get more time, I think, and more things to visualize here on the page. I mean, this crystal glows and plays the drums and makes high-pitched noises that sends the primitives into a trance and they're starting to dance. And we see them in class. Basically, it's lecturing them. They, they have images that appear in their head and then they start to emulate them. They pull up grass blades and tie knots or they pick up rocks and practice their throwing arm at targets. Um, Moonwatcher is a star pupil. It, it's, I dare say, the favorite one, while others don't get the concept. They wander off or some writhe in pain. One even dies. It's not for everyone, but it's very clear that it's an educational tool and that Moon Watcher is going to make the big jump for mankind. Mankind at this point is trying to subsist on any kind of vegetation that it can find, and it's fighting off with warthogs on, on <laughs> how to get a meal. Well, Moonwatcher is going to be the one to realize the warthogs are the meal. I can't think of a better way to demonstrate the difference between movie and book than in this moment. I mean, in the movie, it's probably the most famous scene. We see an ape man pick up a bone and he just realizes slow dawning. I mean, to the tunes of Strauss's beautiful composition, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that da 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 It's like the light bulb is coming on, and we see him realize that, hey, this bone can be used as a weapon, and with this weapon, I can get meat. It's a very powerful, wordless exchange. Well, here's how it comes across in the book in words. As the line of warthogs moved snuffling and grunting across the trail, Moonwatcher came to a sudden halt. Pigs and man-apes had always ignored each other, for there was no conflict of interest between them. Yet now Moonwatcher stood looking at them, wavering back and forth uncertainly as he was buffeted by impulses which he could not understand. Then, as if in a dream, he had started searching the ground, though for what he could not have explained even if he had the power of speech. He would recognize it when he saw it. It was a heavy, pointed stone about six inches long, and though it did not fit his hand perfectly, it would do. As he swung the hand around, puzzled by its suddenly increased weight, he felt a pleasing sense of power and authority. He started to move towards the nearest pig. It was a young and foolish animal, even by the undemanding standards of warthog intelligence. Though it observed him out of the corner of its eye, it did not take him seriously until much too late. Why should it suspect these harmless creatures of an evil intent? It went on rooting up in the grass until Moonwatcher's stone hammer obliterated its dim consciousness. The remainder of the herd continued grazing unalarmed, for the murder had been swift and silent. All the other man-apes in the group had stopped to watch, 
and now they crowded round Moonwatcher and his victim with admiring wonder. And I'll skip ahead just to the end. Basically, they all join in, and it finishes off like this. It was a surprising long time before one of the nursing females began to lick the gory stone she was holding in her paws. And it was longer still before Moonwatcher, despite all that he had been shown, really understood that he need never be hungry again. That's a nice way of putting it. I think that Clark has excellent command of language. But let's face it, this sounds like history book text. The mystery, the power of the Kubrick visuals is undermined by having everything explained so literally. When I was a frustrated film viewer that didn't like 2001 very much, this was a comfort. I thought the book was was better because it was making things crystalline. Now that I've gotten older, I actually liked the ambiguity of Kubrick's poetry. And that's the way I see it. It's the difference between poetry and textbook. That Kubrick isn't afraid to scare us. I mean, that's the way I look at it. I, I appreciate that I'm coming to something that I don't understand. I'm like Moonwatcher to the monolith. I'm approaching something. It's transmitting a message that I'm trying to decipher, but it's unlike anything I've experienced before. So it takes me a while to really have that transformative experience that's ultimately so rewarding. Here, by it being simple prose, by telling us the significance of what's happening, by eradicating the mysteries of the moment, I just feel like Arthur C. Clarke can't help but have a diminished effect every time he's describing things that happened in the movie. He's at his best when he gets to tell us things that Kubrick couldn't film. And there are quite a few here. There are differences, for sure. Some of it was budgetary. Kubrick wanted some things in his script, but he ran out of money. And so they remain only in the book. We'll get one of those moments in the next section. After we leave this dawn of mankind and the lessons of the monolith, it disappears and we jump ahead to what's probably the year 1996. And we go from Moon Watcher to Moon Visitor. We meet Dr. Haywood Floyd. He is on a spaceship headed towards a lunar colony. And we get a lot more here in the lunar colony than I think we do in the movie. Even though the movie, as far as length goes, proportionally, we spend an enormous amount of time on the space station watching ships land, watching people in zero gravity. Here, I think we get more with the science. A little detail that I love that I'll share with you is the fact that Floyd meets a a child that was born on the moon base and it has never known Earth. I love the way that Arthur C. Clarke's mind works because he really captures the ideas of a child. Children don't want to go to Earth because of the gravitational difference. When you're on the moon and you're running around and you slip you kind of float. You don't go crashing to the ground. On Earth, you get injured. You get hurt. Why would you want to go there? It's much more fun to run around and play on the moon. It's a great perspective that I never would have had, and and it's not in the Kubrick movie at all. I suppose there's a similar scene where we meet Floyd's daughter. He communicates a message on her birthday, and we feel the the chasm between them that's it's kind of a sad, poignant moment. Here, it's not sad or poignant, but it does remind us that 
life would be quite extraordinary if we were not on the planet Earth. And I think that, again, Arthur C. Clarke excels whenever he's asked to ponder the differences of what outer space life offers. It's also worth pointing out that this is where the movie was originally going to begin. Both Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke saw the story starting with moon colonists discovering the monolith buried underneath the Tycho Crater and that it would be exposed to sunlight and shoot a signal out, and they would spend the rest of the movie exploring outer space, tracing that signal. Little did Kubrick know he had an hour of movie before that, but uh, such is the nature of collaboration and improvisation. But the reason why they thought this was the start, because the germ of the whole 2001 story concept came from this moment. In 1948, Arthur C. Clarke, wrote a short story, eight pages long, called The Sentinel, and that's pretty much what happened in that story. The moon colonists discovered a machine in the mountains, actually, of a crater, and opened it up to the sun. It set off an alarm, and they're wondering what's going to come for them. Kubrick's instinct was not, of course, to be passive and let the aliens come to us. He wanted us to explore the cosmos, but... Yes, that's where all of this came from. And again, they thought that this is where it was going to start. The whole dawn of mankind and all of that really came much, much later into the creative process. And I'm grateful for it being there because, again, I am reminded that Moon Watcher remains the main character, even though it changes identities. That Floyd and later Dave Bowman are very much Moon Watchers. Floyd, of course, does not know about mankind's first encounter with the monolith he no archaeological dig has ever shown that that device was found with primitive man bones it disappeared from the planet i think this is the same monolith it was moved or moved on its own to be buried underneath the lunar surface what he does know is that the signal transmits all the way to saturn and that's right, Saturn, not Jupiter. That's a big, big difference between the movie and the book is that Arthur C. Clarke saw it going further. Actually, Kubrick saw it going further, too, but then he saw the test footage of how they were going to do Saturn's rings and didn't think the special effects were up to snuff. So he said, eh, we're sticking with Jupiter. And Arthur C. Clarke actually said, this is probably a good idea because the science and the speculation that I had made about Saturn ended up proving wrong. Now that we know more about Saturn, the movie would have been much more inaccurate if we had kept that setting. But it's the year 1999. There was a Jupiter mission planned. We'd never been there before. And Floyd, as the head of the space program, just says, stop the brakes. We're going to go to Saturn with this thing. And it's a crazy plan. I've got to say, it's more interesting here on the page than it is in the film because it's a one-way trip. As they designed, they knew how to get to and from Jupiter in the Discovery 1. But because they have to do some crazy slingshot maneuver using Jupiter's gravitational pull to kind of push them towards Saturn and to get towards their destination, they will not have enough fuel to come back. What the men on board understand is that Dave Bowman... Frank Poole, the commanders of Discovery 1, will have to get into hypersleep and wait for the Discovery 2 to be built and come rescue them once that mission is complete. They are traveling with three scientists who will be woken up. They will be engaged in something that Dave and Frank have not been told about. 
and then everyone will go back into their chambers and wait for rescue from a ship that has not been built yet, all while being monitored by HAL 9000. And yes, he's probably the most famous character. I still consider the monolith the main character of 2001 because it's the only character that is in the start all the way through the finish of the story. But HAL 9000 is an icon. I think everyone knows that. Even if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, everyone knows HAL, that red eye, the fact that he goes crazy, that voice... Kubrick does it so well. I do want to point out, it has long been speculated that Kubrick and or Arthur C. Clarke were trying to make an attack on IBM with the naming of their evil computer, HAL, because it's one letter off from IBM. H-I-A-B-L-M. So somebody worked that out and they were certain that they were making an attack or a comment or maybe just a reference to IBM. Arthur C. Clarke is emphatic that it was never his attempt. He insists that HAL has only been meant to stand for heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, which I looked up what heuristically meant. I'm not a computer scientist, but as far as I can understand, this is all language to basically explain that it's artificially intelligent, it's experience-based, that this thing is just like any other human crew member, except it doesn't go to sleep. But it is a functioning member of this crew that will be in charge of all functions of the Discovery One while the humans are in hypersleep. Why Hell Fails remains another one of 2001's greatest mysteries, and it's one that does not have a complete answer here on the page any more than it does in the movie. There will be an answer coming. Arthur C. Clarke does provide one in the sequel book. We'll discuss it next week in 2010. But all that we really understand for this story is that Hal makes a mistake. He believes that there is a communication link that is about to malfunction. The crew disassemble it, test it out, find out that he was wrong, and then start to discuss what to do about how. This mission can be piloted manually. Perhaps they should disconnect him and do that if he is going to make these kinds of errors. It seems to be that with threats on his life, Hal becomes paranoid. And from that paranoia, he becomes homicidal. His first victim is Frank Poole as he's trying to reinstall that communication link outside the ship. Hal controls his pod to snip his air hose and he's left floating off into space. Uh, Dave actually ironically makes the comment later that he'll be the first man to Saturn. But he doesn't go to rescue him. This is another big difference. I mean, certainly one of the big famous scenes in the movie is... Dave Bowman in his pod trying to get back into the Discovery, arguing with Hal to open the pod bay door, not on the page. I think the Hal on the page is actually a lot smarter. Why try to trick him to go outside and trap him out when you can just open the airlock and suck all the air out? That's actually how he tries to take out Dave. And meanwhile, he does kill the three scientists that are in hypersleep. It basically necessitates that he will have to finish the mission for the humans. I think that Hal still intends to complete his mission. He's he's prideful of that. He's not going to let the human beings get in the way of his ego. 
In the movie, I can't help feeling a little bad when they shut down Hal, but it doesn't really play that way here on the page. It's much more clear-cut, and I do feel like it's satisfaction when Dave is able to disconnect his memory cells and take manual control of the ship. He gets a transmission from Floyd, there was nothing wrong with that com link after all, that he needs to go to Japatis, which is a moon of Saturn, that the signal was transmitted there, and that they believe something alien is awaiting with further instructions, and that poor Dave, who really has no expertise or training for this kind of thing, he's not the scientist that were brought on, he is just the pilot of the ship, he is going to have to do his best to be an ambassador for the human race and find out what on earth is waiting in the moon of Saturn. Surprise, surprise, it's the monolith, although it's a bigger one. They they dub it the Big Brother, as it were. It's miles wider than the one that appeared on the moon and that appeared on Earth. It's actually referred to as a Stargate. It is, quote, Grand Central Station. You can use this as a doorway to navigate the entire universe if you know how to do it. And given that Dave has no real options otherwise. There's no how to keep him alive in hyperspace. There's no way that he can live with the food and supplies that are left and the oxygen uh, in time for a Discovery 2 to be built and come and rescue him. He really has no other choice but to get into a pod and blast off into the Stargate. In the movie, it's all trippy 60s visuals, very psychedelic. You can't imagine anyone trying to coherently explain what you're seeing. Here, Clark, being the pragmatist, he's not going to not try and give you answers. I give him props for that. I'll read you a little section here, uh, just so you know. A duly gleaming cobweb of latticework, or metal, hundreds of miles in extent, grew out of nowhere until it filled the sky. Scattered across its continent-wide surface were structures that must have been as large as cities, but which appeared to be machines. Around many of these were assembled scores of smaller objects, ranging in neat rows and columns. Bowman had passed several such groups before he realized that they were fleets of spaceships. He was flying over a gigantic orbital parking lot. Well, that's sure not what I saw when I saw that Kubrick movie. Again, is the concrete literalism of what Clark's supplying here better than what you can imagine? Well, it really depends on how much you want to play with Kubrick. I mean, if you are willing to go for the wild psychedelic ride and come up with your own answers about what's happening, I think it's probably disappointing to find out that Clark's answers aren't anywhere close to yours, or at least it was for me. But again, for certain viewers, I think that they're going to want these translations. They're going to want to make sense of what they saw in the last 20 minutes of Kubrick's film. And he goes further to explain that crazy room that Dave ends up in. It's a holding cell that, that Dave basically figures out that these aliens have never seen Earth, but they've tried to design a facsimile to make him feel comfortable while he waits for their unknown purpose. He considers it like a TV set. They, they only know Earth from TV, so of course it looks like a cheap cardboard Hollywood set, as you would see on I Love Lucy. And there's music playing and newspapers and food, but it's the details just aren't quite right. Dave's not quite buying into the vision. He knows he hasn't returned home. He knows that he is being inspected and that there is something that they want him to do. Again, in Kubrick's vision, 
He turns into a fetus and we're out. You know, they play the Strauss and I'm in tears and I have no idea what I've just watched, but I'm incredibly moved. Here, this space baby, it's called a star child on the page, has a very specific purpose. It's being sent back to Earth to handle the problem of human weaponry. You know, you remember that this all started. Human evolution began the day that Moonchild realized that a bone could be a weapon, or in the case of the book, a stone could be a weapon. Well, now these weapons are nuclear. We have nuclear satellites, and we've advanced to a point that we really can cause cataclysmic destruction. Starchild comes back to Earth not to observe it, not to just be cute and, and reminisce, it comes back to destroy all of our nuclear potential. I get the sense that our technology, our tools, our weapons have taken us as far as we can go. Now we are being reborn into a perhaps less violent culture where we will need no such things. Seems a little too hippie for me. I know that it wouldn't have been enough just to have someone write, and he became a star fetus, the end. We needed to have that character fulfill an arc. We've been watching moon watchers look to the heavens, being led to a new divine purpose. It's helpful to see what that purpose might be. But in short, the accomplishments that Kubrick makes with the visual language in his film are so gigantic that I don't think that any author, even one as good as Arthur C. Clarke, can really begin to encapsulate what was done. That's my opinion anyway. I really do feel like you've got to see that movie. I hope you join us over at Now Playing to hear my thoughts on that. But the effect is like being afraid of the dark and, and seeing monsters in the corners and then someone flicking on the lights and realizing there wasn't that much to be afraid of to begin with. Uh, to demystify is to rob 2001 of too much, in my opinion. It needs to remain enigmatic, mysterious. It it should always haunt us. It should never be explainable as a story. But if this is a book franchise, they, they have to set ground rules here. We have to know what's going on. I'm perfectly comfortable leaving this area and looking forward to not having to compare it to Kubrick for the next three podcasts. There are still three books to go. They were all written without the involvement of film directors, so I will be focusing entirely on what is on the written page. And I will just treat this as its own mythology. This is, to me, very different than the movie. Even though it contains many of the same imagery, it's not the same experience. Let's go with where it is. It's not bad for what it is. I do think Clark is a fine writer, and I do feel like there is many mysteries here that I still want exploring, namely what happened to Hal and what is Star Baby going to do next? What are we going to do without nukes? I, it's it's also crazy to contemplate. I mean, we have to give peace a chance. It's It's a requirement now. So I'm very curious to see where this can pick up, what happens to Earth culture, what happens inside the Stargates. There's much to explore here, and that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're on an odyssey. Please join me next week for 2010 Odyssey 2. I look forward to sharing my thoughts with you then. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. 
The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.